This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Horace Didu from Asimco and Clayton Christensen Institute, who is back for another trilogy on our podcast to discuss startup strategy, Apple and Cars. In the first part of the trilogy, Horace discussed his latest work on modular revolution and startup strategy, and how this form part of how we understand and find the right timing for innovation to enter the market. Hi, Horace. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good in Singapore. Where are you now? I'm actually in Boston in the eastern United States. Oh, so you're actually 12 hours behind my time, basically. No, I think it's 13 hours if I'm not wrong. Oh, yeah, it's it's about 8 in the morning. Yes, I, I'm just reaching 9 p.m. So I am talking to Horace Deneu, Senior Fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute. And of course, he's well known for his main site, asimco.com. And of course, I'm a fan of Horace's Three podcasts, The Critical Path, A SIM Car, and Significant Digit with Ben Beharin, which I totally highly recommend. So before I get started, since our last conversation, which was two years ago, what have you been up to as a senior fellow at Clayton Christensen Institute? Well, you can imagine the Institute as a think tank, actually a privately funded nonprofit organization that does research and publishes in the same way many think tanks do, and also academic institutions do. But the topic we study exclusively is disruptive innovation, which is, you could say, a branch of management theory or management science, if you want to be ambitious. And that itself is, of course, part of the social sciences. And so this is not the type of research that's very driven by strong theories. It tends to be anecdotal, and that's that's the nature of, of management. However, we try to bring a more rigorous theory approach. That's what disruption theory itself is, is a way of thinking about management and the problems of business with a more rigorous approach, axiomatic, if you will. I'm going to say that one of my favorite and probably the best business book I've read last year was actually a book from Clayton Christensen called Competing Against Luck, which actually finally get me to understand the whole jobs to be done framework. I thought that was very interesting. And you also teach in the Clayton Christensen Institute as well, right? Well, or occasionally we have fellows who are joining us from industry. So companies which sponsor the Institute can send a fellow or two. And I teach them, if necessary, some of the foundational courses that are used also in the Harvard Business School uh, to teach theory, which is in the business school that's called, it's a class called BSSC or Building and Sustaining Successful Enterprise. And that material is what Clay has built over the years to teach disruption, yes. So I'm going to break this podcast into two parts, and I wanted to first focus on major topic is startup strategy, modular revolution, and Apple. Having heard your research on your podcast, I'd like to ask you first about your work on modular revolution, which actually looking at S-curve of innovation. Can you briefly talk about the ideas for modular revolution? Modular revolution is kind of a play on word. Disruption theory observed that as an industry evolves and as an industry matures, it tends to become more modular. And this modular is a term 
of art in management science in the sense that used to apply to something called business architecture. And what a business architecture means is what is the distinction between what you do in-house and what you do outside of the of the firm with partners? And and historically, maybe throughout the 80s and 90s, we saw a, a vast modularization occur. And this is the idea of outsourcing, the idea of core competency, the idea of uh, focusing on specific role inside of a value chain. And the value chain became a subject of analysis. And so the, the simplest way to explain that in a non-academic way is that if you look at the personal computer, it started out as a very modular computer versus the alternative at the time, which was an integrated mini computer or mainframe computer. So what the personal computer demonstrated that was that you could reach many more people reduce price dramatically and truly uh, revolutionize, if not disrupt the industry by dividing and conquering the problem with partners as your helpers. And so Microsoft and Intel were the obvious two major partners in that in that enterprise, and then hundreds of companies building and assembling computers. But then you also have thousands of developers. You also had thousands of component manufacturers and so on and so on. And so you ended up with a very, very modular architecture for that business. And that was be, that became an observation that I carried forward into a lot of industries where we wanted you know divide and conquer all the problems. If we could split them up and let people focus on individual problems rather than try to integrate everything. This is in contrast to vertical integration, which was in vogue for some time in the early 20th century. So Henry Ford, for example, famously integrated the automobile by making the Model T something under one roof. So you had giant manufacturing facility that actually made everything from the woodwork to the steel to the engines and every single part was made in-house. And that that allowed him to reach an enormous scale and then also make the product very popular. So here you have two ways of approaching the problem. One is an integrated approach. One is a very modular approach. Both were successful at certain times. So the question that everybody has is when do you do one versus the other? And so this is what modular revolution comes to be as a theory because it suggests that actually there is no right way of doing it. It all depends of when you are within the diffusion cycle of your technology. So if you're in the early stages of a new technology and it requires you to figure out difficult problems, sometimes job to be done problems, not just technical problems, understanding the user rather than understanding the technology. If those are required, you're better off integrating and building the system by sort of taking on more and more challenges as Apple is, for example, by building its own microprocessors or building its own subcomponents and getting involved even in retail and distribution and somewhat manufacturing with partners very deeply integrating that as well. And so we've seen that uh, that approach by Apple when it's trying to solve new problems. So for example, building some of these truly wondrous miniaturized headphones we call AirPods, that required a lot of expertise in battery technology and wireless technology and things which actually most companies don't have in their partners. And so that approach sometimes is necessary. But later on, when when you need to move to a, a mature stage of that industry, you're actually better off modularizing. And that is the conventional wisdom of the of the PC industry. And in fact, what Google does with and Microsoft did with uh, with Android and uh, an operating system dividing the the boundary between hardware and software. And that sort of thing is what, uh, again, most people assume is the right way, the quote-unquote open way, but it's also not ideal if you try and invent something. And 
And that's the, the, the notion of the revolution isn't just describing this dichotomy, but being more precise about when do you actually switch over? Because a company typically doesn't have the ability to do both at the same time. And so you have to somehow plan your own evolution as an industry, as a participant in an industry and somehow to change your DNA to go, be, go from one to the other. And by the way, the other thing that's important is that, as the name implies in revolution, is that you go back and forth and you actually return back to an integrative state when the industry matures and commoditizes and you need to come up with a new thing. So it somehow requires you to constantly be switching between integrated and, and modular. And that is what it's required of a sustainable business for a long enough time frame. It used to be that the time frames were a century for the technology, like let's say the automobile or the steam engine. But nowadays, things are happening so quickly that you have to go between modular and integrated and back, perhaps on the 10 to 20 year cycle, which is actually very, very challenging. And very few companies have done. And in fact, I would argue that Apple is, is an outlier and it's an exception because they have been able to do this when you look at it closely enough. I'd like to dive deeper to this question. So I observed that Google has done something called Project Error, which is something to basically modularize the smartphone. And somehow it didn't work out. Is it because it picked the wrong timing for whether it should go modular or integrated? Or is it just because the smartphone's development is still at an early stage? And I think the customers or the jobs to be done is actually more integrated rather than modular. Yes, yeah, so let's be very specific about the, the modularity boundaries, if you will, in a product are not always clear cut. Project Ara is at the user layer. So in other words, the user has the option to put modules together and therefore the product itself appears at, at a surface level, at a point where you touch it as being a modular product. Th that is like a Lego, looking at a product that's built from Lego brick, it would appear to be modular to the naked eye. However, modularity extends far, far deeper than that. It's even the question of whether you have the operating system and the hardware together or whether you have the hardware integrated into a, a module that is in itself very many pieces fused together. Let's take the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch module for the computer inside it is very highly integrated so that Apple has to really control that assembly and the design very, very tightly. And the same thing with AirPods. And a lot of the products they have, which are truly small, even the pencil, require a high degree of integration. The thing about this is sometimes people say that Apple, well, that means Apple's highly integrated and, and Google is highly modular. But when you look at it, let's study these two companies more carefully. In the case of Apple, they actually have hundreds of suppliers they work with. They also have millions of developers they work with. So there are, there are certainly things they don't do themselves, but they choose to do some things and not others. And this is the question about the degree of modularity and where it occurs. In the case of Apple, they choose to actually control the operating system and some core applications, as well as the hardware and increasingly more, more of the microprocessor. But in the case of Google, they clearly stay out of the hardware, although you see them starting to get into the hardware more and more. So has Microsoft gotten more and more into hardware. But there's a sort of still in the back of your mind, you think that Apple is a hardware company and Google is a software company, Microsoft is a software company. But the, the point is that they, they both draw lines, sometimes moving those lines, but they draw lines you know, in, in terms of the architecture. But the point about ARA is that the lines are drawn all the way at the end user level. And that is unusual for most products because the users don't like to put things together themselves unless you're a do-it-yourself enthusiast. Usually something that they want to have seen as a finished product. So I think one of the reasons 
project hire failed is that it isn't a user behavior that's you know or job to be done i don't have a job every day where i think about i wish i could plug in and disassemble my phone in many cases i'm annoyed by the fact that i have to carry with me certain types of accessories so that i think the failure of r isn't entirely an architectural issue but more of a, a job to be done or misreading of the user requirement but over time we might see the phone business become more modular in which case for example in the case of apple you know they, they are already abdicating some of the functionality of the product to developers so that there's a lot of innovation happening, for example, in imaging and in terms of processing the camera signal into something else. You're seeing also, not so much on Apple's case, you know, distribution innovation in terms of partnering with different players, although we might see something interesting there in India to that local market. Fundamentally, also, Google is moving and evolving its strategy and becoming more integrated rather than more modular. And so these are moving targets and, and companies are able to adapt to some degree. And that's a reflection of the need to integrate. And in some cases, I'll give you one example from history. When the bicycle was invented, companies that made bicycles didn't have suppliers to build them. So they had to integrate manufacturing and also forging and metalwork that had precision required to make bicycles. And so you tended to get giant companies, and then eventually a lot of the expertise of bicycle making turned into automobile manufacturing. So there's some interesting, you know, patterns to this over time. And this is what we do in the terms of the research: is that we just don't just put down the hypothesis, but we have to sort of dig up some of the data that would support it or deny it. And so we look for anomalies and we look for for data. And the great thing about Apple is that it makes for a great case study to show exactly how modularity has evolved and how they're successful with an integrative approach and then they're more, they're successful also with drawing boundaries with the, allowing developers for example to to also create an ecosystem just one last part on this question so we talk about lego for example it's a very beautiful toy jobs to be done for kids and it basically breaks down the building into building blocks like a modular block do you foresee at some point that the real estate for example building skyscrapers would reach the point that now it's very integrated, but will you go back to the world of modularization? Maybe you solve a different kind of jobs to be done? That's a good question. You know, construction, manufacturing in general, we've seen breakthroughs in technology that allow some of these things to become more or less modular. And many people who narrate these stories and tell these histories will point to technologies that made this possible and suggesting that that was the cause of an integration or a modularization stage. When we think about it as a business architecture, what we observe typically is that, in fact, there's an economic foundation to this evolution rather than strictly a technological one. If you think about you know, automobile, I'll try to do the, the construction business in a second because that's a complicated story. Let me tell you the story of the automobile. The automobile, again, with Ford's innovation. Before Ford, by the way, we had 30 to 40 years of car manufacturing. It was just done in a hand-built batch-oriented production system. It was not a continuous process the way Ford pioneered it. And But once it became, final assembly became possible in a continuous flow, suddenly it completely shook up the industry. And many of the early players simply went out of business, thousands of competitors in the early car business. And they all essentially evaporated. We ended up with two or three, which was the ones who could, even General Motors, who was number two, was the assembly 
or the, the combination of many brands which were unsustainable individually. And that's how GM became a, a collection of brands. But these two companies essentially dominated for decades after. What this process involves is very integrated fabrication of metal with, uh, with sheet metal stamping in parallel manufacturing of engines, followed by paint. And nowadays, the, the terms are body and white, followed by paint, followed by final assembly. These are the three main stages of automobile production. And that remained integrated for a long time, except that the sub-assemblies were manufactured outside of the plant. So you had interiors and and parts that were coming in from suppliers. And Toyota later on in the 20th century made it possible to do this in a just-in-time fashion, just eliminating a lot of weight. Now, as a result, we ended up with a kind of a hybrid, highly modular, just-in-time delivery of components, which are manufactured outside the firm, coupled with this highly integrated body and engine production system. And so we ended up with, uh, you could argue that the auto industry is highly modular because you have tier one and and so on suppliers, which are a, a huge part of the industry, but you still have the manufacturer holding on to the engine and the final assembly and the, and the sheet metal production system. Now, as technology evolves, we might move away from this. And I've been advocating this on on a SIM car that we could see uh, a revolution in manufacturing of cars if we went away from sheet metal which is heavy and very expensive, both in energy and in terms of capital to manufacture. If we could go to composites and tubular frames, which are far, far cheaper and better, but at the same time may may have some challenges in terms of scale, which sheet metal allows for. But we see how the injection of composite technologies and the sort of lightweight chassis, which go away from the unibody monocoque designs, and that could allow the industry to evolve. But that's a technological innovation in a way, the the composite bodies. But at the same time, you have the force that's compelling you to become more and more modular because you have to respond to market conditions much more rapidly. The automotive industry is saddled with a six-year cycle, sometimes four-year cycle, for new product introductions. This is why it's so slow to adopt the types of high technologies and computer technologies that are consumer-driven today. And so we end up with the entertainment systems and user interfaces in cars, which are archaic and, and just frankly bizarre from anyone's point of view. And, and so the pressure is mounting for them to be able to inject technology into their systems much more rapidly. But they can't do that because their manufacturing systems are so, so slow to t- turn, change over and put into production new models. This, is, this pressure is, is likely to force manufacturers, even though they may not see the benefit of composite construction, they might force them to that end because of market pressures or an entrant could come in with that strategy and just completely clean up the industry by showing them how to do it. And so that that's a fascinating possibility in the car industry. And if you look at construction, a lot of things are similar in terms of thinking about building materials. When we went from bricks and we went to concrete and then we went to, of course, reinforced concrete, and then we went to possibly modular ways of, of building the skeleton of the building uh, and then adding parts to it in a pre-assembled fashion. And experiments have been going on on, on this for a long time. And I think there there is one company in China which has developed a a very clever assembly technique for buildings and are able to put up a a fairly tall 
tall, you know, multi-story building in a matter of days because of that. So there's certainly attempts to modularize construction for large buildings, and that's that's coming along uh, possibly very well. We will take an advertisement break for the moment. Innovation and value generation remained at the forefront of the fourth edition of the IoT Asia Conference, which returns on the 29th to 30th of March at the Singapore Expo Exhibition Halls. Join the three-track conference to learn about the latest developments and initiatives from top leaders and leading lights in the field. Use the code IOT7AASIA to get a 10% discount off the conference rates except academic. Coming back. And then you subsequently took the research from Modular Revolution and then you also developed the startup strategy theory. I wanted to understand what are the main tenets of startup strategy or is it just for startup or can it be implemented also into major corporations as well? Yeah, I think startup is chosen the word because it, it doesn't imply the startup, but also starting something new. And this is it's very much about applying it to old as well as new and, and to big as well as small. So the idea is the mentality of startup strategy is that if you take the modular revolution, the very notion that industries go through stages, an industry goes through an inventive stage, as I call it, a diffusive stage, and then it goes on to a low-end disruptive stage and possibly an attack on non-consumption in the very latest stage. So the idea is that I divide an industry into four stages. And these four stages are somewhat drawn on top of an S-curve. And the S-curve is sort of the global adoption of that technology. And it's simply been based on the pattern recognition process. You just look at a hundred of these stories, a hundred industries, and you see how they changed and how the participants in the industry actually either adapted or disappeared in order to conform to these stages, right? So you have some of this was, let me give credit, some of this was observed by Jeffrey Moore in his book called Crossing the Chasm, where he defined the stages. And those stages were, by the way, also identified by a previous researcher, who wrote the book, his name is, it'll come to me in a minute, Everett Rogers. He built a, a book called The Diffusion of Innovations and actually segmented at the S-curve into these early adopter, late adopter, and laggard, and, and innovator, and so on. Those early majority, late majority, and all of those distinctions of the psychology of adoption. He's a sociologist observing a lot of the ways people behave and how they influenced one another during this evolution of, an in, of a technology at the time. So it was not an observation about business. It was an observation about technology and psychology. And more applied it to business, in particular high technology businesses, and he observed that these psychological behaviors w- were impeding uh, or were, when observed by a, by a marketer, they were causing them to misread the, the signals and not anticipate the changes necessary. A lot of this is built on very big pre- prior work. My observation is when you add in a bunch of uh, new stuff that we've observed since, which is modularity, also platform effects and network effects, which are of the software and internet era. We can also think about this in a new, in a new way. And so defining and looking at the segments of the industry with respect to how firms behave. And the firm behavior in early stages are integrated. The late stages are modular. Firm behavior in terms of understanding customers is a simple way of putting it is an early customer is interested in, in being a beneficiary of the product. They, they're willing to change their lives in order to accommodate the product. Late adopters and late customers 
are actually unwilling to change. And as a result, the product has to change. So late customers change your product. Early customers are changed by your product. So this is this understanding of the change of customers, the change in architecture of the whole business and the whole industry means that a firm has to change its behavior. And so all I did in startup strategies much more succinctly define these stages, which means that you have to have a strategy that evolves accordingly. And a strategy, in, in if you're inventive, you have to do it one way. If you're diffusing, you have to do it another way, and, and so on. This used to be something that may have been visible, but again, it was happening so slowly that it didn't matter. You could be comfortable for 20, 30 years not changing your architecture, not changing your, your marketing or planning, because you were always in the diffusive stage, it took just 30 years for things to actually get to that stage. You would run out of uh, opportunity. Nowadays, you have three, maybe years and maybe even less. So companies have to be much more flexible. And we've heard this again before. We said we talk about agility. We talk about flexibility all the time. But the objective of this work is to be very precise in timing. So let me give you a quick example. Let's say you had a new idea. Let's say it could be AR, VR. Let's say it could be an idea related to autonomous driving. Let's say it was an idea related to mega cities and the evolution of transportation within the city. And then you you talk about drones or you talk about wearable technologies in general. And then you ask yourself, oh, I can see what's going to happen. This is all going to become one way or the other. Well, fine. That's being a futurist. And what I always say is that that the difference between a futurist and a successful entrepreneur is about, you know, a billion dollars. You know, people who can tell the future are futurists. People who know when the future happens are, are called billionaires. This is the question of timing. The timing is everything. So it's not sufficient to say someday we will all speak to our computers using voice interfaces or someday we will all have autonomous cars. If you don't know when, you can't make any plans. If you don't know when, you can't apply any capital and therefore make it happen. So we could actually, we, we need to rely on people making those guesses and making those calls and putting money now as opposed to later, many times losing in the money in the process. And so this is what, this is what drives the, the business, not just the theory of technological evolution. Let's take one of these off the shelf and ask this question about when. So if you, if you take a look at the AR VR, one way to analyze that would be, Hey, let's look at the trajectories of certain components. We can see microprocessors. We can see battery technology. We can see screen technology. And then we can take samples, like we can see the HoloLens, and we can see see Google VR, oh, sorry, Google Glass. And then we can see some of the uh, you know early prototypes, even products like from HTC and from Facebooks and so on, attempt at this. And then you say, ah, okay, well the trajectories are this, and of the technology is this, and then the capital is following very rapidly. Therefore, it's all going to happen in three years. Well, that's not going to be enough because, in fact, you have to then look at customer consumer behavior and ask this kind of question about adoption. And when you look at adoption, there's a lot more going on in terms of psychology. There's a lot more going on in terms of infrastructure. There's a lot more going on in terms of what we call conformability, which is, does it fit in my life? Does it fit in my patterns of behavior? A lot of problems with autonomy in cars will be hitting that wall in terms of not just user behavior, but the behavior of regulators and authorities who may or may not accept this technology. 
And so when you start to look at this, you say, well, my S-curve may not be three years. It may actually be 30 years. And in which case, you have to really reevaluate the way you invest. It's fascinating because it's not, it's not a closed system in that I, I could predict this, but rather it's a loop or a feedback system because behavior sometimes leads to additional behavior by the other side, which then leads back to your behavior. So you can, you see firms, regulators, consumers signaling to one another and causing each other to change behavior. So it's not entirely obvious how it will evolve. And many times feedback systems grow exponentially as opposed to linearly. You know, a lot of this stuff is very sensitive, cannot be modeled yet mathematically. But the framework of analysis that I provide is simply where should you be looking? What should you be measuring? What should you ignore? And so there's a lot of this underway right now and trying to be very precise about it. I don't claim that we're going to solve the puzzle, but I think it will give a way of thinking about it, a way to discuss it that will be more valuable than what we have today. My past life is a theoretical physicist, so I like grand unified theories. So my (laughs) last question to this is, in this whole theory of disruptive innovation, I could think about the jobs to be done as a framework to look at the consumer behavior, whether I'm solving the jobs to be done. And would I be right to say that the startup strategy is to look at the timing problem in thinking about innovation and disruption and how to apply at the right time with a framework on that? Exactly. My assertion, which isn't proven yet, is that small companies and startups, whether they be small or big, I should say, starting something new, the most sensitive thing, the the most precious resource you have is time. It's not actually capital. It's not even talent. A lot of people are enthusiastic about joining a new project. A lot of internally or externally, a lot of people actually are willing to give money. The the problem is that what constrains the money and what constrains the talent is that are we too early? Are we too late? That is what I, if you have pitches you're making in, in venture capital communities, for example, that comes up very, very quickly. What's our window of opportunity? How can we act quickly enough so that competition doesn't swamp us? because they have more resources than we do. So timing is the most important resource that a startup, as opposed to a large company and an existing business, timing is not their primary consideration. Time is on their side. Time is not on your side when when you're starting something. And this is what the fundamental dichotomy is and why I think there hasn't been a theory of timing, if you will, in terms of business, particularly because large companies have no appetite for timing because they, that it doesn't concern them very much. But small companies have a large appetite for timing, but they have few resources to spend on strategy, which is why I call it, by the way, startup strategy is a strategy for the starting of a business as opposed to for the maintaining of a business. But if you look at the body of work on strategy theory, business strategy, it's mostly aimed at large companies who are not necessarily timing constrained. And that's why they aren't instrument of timing offered in strategy. We are looking at things like the pioneer in in business strategy thinking has been, for example, Porter. And if you look at Porter's theories, and they're all about understanding the nature of the industry in in its sort of static, long-term, sustainable advantage questions, the forces that are acting on an industry, very little to discuss about timing. And that's what I'm trying to to work out. And and again, my, my answer is that timing hasn't been requested because it is a strategy has been a product for large companies, not small companies or starting companies. So that's the background of, of this. And I, I, I keep kind of stressing the, the time 
the, the time constraints. And I think there's an opportunity to provide now this type of overview of how, when things happen as opposed to just how they happen. Did that answer the question? Because I kind of... Yes, uh, I know. No, no. I actually enjoying the conversation. I've been listening to your podcast and trying to piece these theories together in a bigger picture for myself. So that was why I asked this question about whether it was a timing. And I think the answer is very clear, actually. Yeah, the job to be done, by the way, is interesting as a theory. And it's one of the problems we struggle with is that we have like 20 theories that Clay put forward. And it's not just things like the trajectories of uh, underservice and overservice jobs to be done theory we also have theories of deliberate versus emerging strategies you know allocation of good and good capital and bad capital a lot of these things which are actually cases that are presented in the course material at Harvard Business School called as i mentioned the BSSC course these are individual theories that are being put forward. We haven't had a theory on timing. And the jobs theory is kind of, and one of the things when I joined the Institute, I asked, so let me get this straight. You have all these theories, let's say 20 theories out there, but how are they connected together? And this is like you said, in physics, you may have observations of nature and you say, well, we understand how perhaps gravity works and we understand thermodynamics and we may understand something about the laws of motion and statics and dynamics. But are these connected in any way? And this is what, you know, the 20th century of has brought us is that a lot of these, the elegance of unifying the theories has suddenly been, been just uh, astonishing. We sort of almost see that, that everything works together. And so, in fact, at the, at the fundamental level, bi biology and chemistry and physics are all related to one another, not just subsections of physics, but you have all of the natural sciences starting to make sense together. And this is what in, in business, we just don't have that. We have not just Clay's theories, but you have hundreds of other theories out there. Sometimes they're not even called that. They're not even identified as theories, but but you have this, we have this idea that they, these are all standalone islands and they're not connected in any way. And so what I, what I was hoping to do at the Institute was actually find some of the linkages. And one of the big ones that's missing right now is how jobs theory relates to all this. Jobs theory is fascinating because it actually tends to define the cause of purchasing behavior. And it might seem that we already know why people buy things, but it turns out we don't. A lot of the theories that predate jobs theory are really fundamentally economic theories. And this goes back to standard sort of classical economics. If you think about, if you were to ask an economist, why do people buy things? And they'll say, well, because the price is right. And they'll say things like, well, if the price goes up, then they won't buy it. And if the price goes down, everybody will buy it. And that's about it. That's all we knew about buying behavior. And, and most of the, you know, once you go to the real world, you realize that not only is price almost irrelevant, but also that there's a lot of psychological baggage going on, which is why you have things like, if you simply want proof, just watch television for about half an hour and look at a few commercials and you'll see what they are trying to propose as a buying decision or a buying purpose. It has very little to do with price. It's also very little to do with utility, which is one of the other elements that the economists bring into the picture. And they say, well, if, if it has utility of a certain amount, then it's worth this much. And the utility value, which is measurable, is also very rarely what customers actually end up doing. So jobs theory, in many ways, it doesn't say this explicitly, I think it should, is a contradiction of economics. Jobs theory says that behavior of buyers is driven entirely by emotional, uh, often, but sometimes functional, but emotional needs. That there are foundational reasons why people do things which are context-oriented so that we have 
you have the, the world around you, which is compelling you, constraining you to buy certain things. And that's one thing we very rarely observe. We, we observe the object being bought, but not the circumstances around that object being used. And uh, that circumstances could include people. It could include your mother. It could include your friend who is giving you advice, who is actually telling you. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to get this to please them. And so there's a lot of these second order or third order effects in terms of societies and behavior. The point about jobs theory is that it sits in between the ad man and the advertising agency who comes up with the triggers, emotional triggers for decision making. And often those people are studying a psychology, but also sort of public perception and things like that, right? So you have, you have the ad business, you know, a Coke and a smile, you know, or whatever the slogan might be. It's about, it seems trivial and fluffy, but it often works. And at the other extreme, which is the economic view, which is like, well, utility is offset by price. Uh, in, in Jobs theory is somewhere in the middle between these two and so suggestive that, that there's a way to understand customer behavior. Now, again, this sounds fantastic as a, as a way of research, as a way of understanding things. But how does it relate to, to disruption? How does it relate to diffusion? How does it relate to the modularity that we just talked about? How does it relate to network effects? How does it relate to all the theories that are underpinning, for example, brands like Apple's brand or or a luxury brand? How do these things interrelate? And that's the magic of, of this work we're doing is that we actually try to find this out and try to see that there's actually a common language we can use amongst these. Maybe, I maybe won't happen for another century as it took physics centuries to develop. And we're still at the very early stages. I, you know, as I said in one of my first podcasts, in, in terms of business theory, we're, we are still in medieval times. We are not yet at the point where we're able to share information the way the scientific method evolved that allowed publications to properly happen and debates to properly happen so that we could move forward. A lot of the things we, we do know are secret. And so we don't share the information and we don't have data sets that we can actually collaborate on. Uh, a lot of this stuff is missing. So my work has been all about trying to sort of surface some of this data, letting people debate it openly and, and, and not in that sort of a an academic way, but in more of the public uh, forums that we have today. I'm pretty sure that the data will actually start to accumulate once you put the framework down. Just like physics, we started off from very basic gravity theories, very basic laws of motions. It took us 300 years to get to Einstein's theory of relativity. So, you know, disruption theory, I think, is only about 20 years. So it will take some time. But we will take a pause here and come back in the second part of this conversation.